Hello and welcome to the podcast, A Very Brief Introduction to the British Empire. This is a podcast run by Uncomfortable Oxford, which is a student-led social enterprise in the city of Oxford. If you're interested in learning more about our various activities, feel free to visit our website, www.uncomfortableoxford.com. My name is Paula Larson. I am a doctoral student at the University of Oxford and co-founder and co-director of Uncomfortable Oxford. Hi, I'm Wakas. I'm also a doctoral student studying French and English literature. And today our second lecture will be given by co-director Olivia Durand, currently a doctoral student in global and imperial history. Hi everyone, I'm Olivia. Thanks for joining us on our second lecture in our very brief introduction to the British Empire series. This talk is part of the Age of Exploration module, and it will be on the Indian Ocean. So, maybe just a few facts to start off. What is the Indian Ocean? The Indian Ocean borders Asia, Africa, Australia, and it's the world's third largest ocean. It is the only ocean that gets its name from a geographic location, the Indian Peninsula, but it was not always named this way. It was called Sindhu Mahasagara, the Great Sea of the Sindhu, by people in ancient Indian cultures. And the Indian Ocean was also known as the Eastern Ocean, a name that was still in use during the mid 18th century. India itself is a bit of a clumsy concept. Because prior to British colonization, many called it Hindustan or Bharat, but the overall identity of Indians as living in a country named India was missing. The idea of nationalism arose only during the British period, especially during the 1857 revolt. The British Empire has an important role to play in the recent history of the Indian Ocean from the 1600s onwards. But Britain was not the only empire in history and this lecture series helps set the scene to how Britain eclipsed and supplanted its rivals to become a world power and amass a large amount of land all very distant from Britain. The British colonial empire is a story that still sparks a lot of controversy today, and the influence of empire is still felt in many countries across the globe. So today I will be talking specifically about the Indian Ocean region. Looking at a map, it comprises the east coast of Africa all the way down to the Cape of Good Hope, the Arabian Peninsula, the Indian subcontinent, and Southeast Asia, all the way up to China. This talk is about the early stages of exploration and conquest, but what I want to do is to try to unsettle dominant narratives of European explorers discovering or conquering the Indian Ocean, and I want to try to go a little bit further back in history to also talk about non-European explorers and conquerors and try to problematize a little bit this idea of age of exploration. So specifically you're saying that if we look at exploration and then all the consequences of it, 
we're still always thinking of the Europeans as the primary kind of power. Whereas what we should also be able to do is look at those who were colonized and see the agency that they had and the impact that they had on the incoming cultures. <laughs> Indeed. So just to jump on that, we talked in the last episode about how problematic the idea of an age of discovery is, but the age of exploration is not much better at any rate. In the Indian Ocean, the age of exploration for China, for instance, and for other nations, groups and communities happened at a different time. So what we assume by age of exploration is very Eurocentric. Most of the world had already been settled or indigenously occupied for thousands of years before any intrepid Westerners set out to explore it. So this assumption of exploration can also create a biased view of history, with colonialism and expansion seeming unavoidable, although it only really covers the last four to five centuries of our history. So again, this podcast series and this talk are aimed at maybe problematizing a little bit more the idea of exploration and the view that we have of certain regions of the globe. Yeah, definitely. Just to give an Oxford example, at the university there was an Indian institute set up in the 1880s for the study of India, but also mostly for the training of future members of the Indian civil service. And the history reader was only required officially to teach about the history of India from the start of Britain's colonization. Although the podcast series is about the British Empire, I want to be careful to not adopt the same approach. This talk will follow three movements. First, I want to highlight the early explorations of the Indian Ocean, which reversed the West-East dynamic of exploration and creates a um, chronology of the age of explorations that starts much earlier than the 15th century, starts at about 300 BCE. I want to show how fascination for an eastward passage to India prompted European maritime explorations. And finally, the last part of the lecture will look at the colonization of the Indian Ocean by Europeans and, more specifically, the British, and the swing to the east in Britain's colonial enterprises. So clearly all of this didn't just happen overnight. Of course. And it is important to see these explorations and settlements as part of a step-by-step -step process of taking small amounts of land, then more land, then slowly expanding through treaties, warfare, or following economic interests. The early British involvement in India was a process that took about two centuries to reach its peak, with an important transformation of the forms of British presence and power on the ground. And then we also see Britain's further expansion in other territories in the Indian Ocean. 
to start with a question to you guys. Um, when thinking about exploration, who are the first explorers who come to mind who are not Europeans? Ooh, that's tough. Well, I would go back to like indigenous populations that came into North America over the Bering Land Straits. So like 20,000 years ago. So that's definitely exploration in its own right, moving through land that's newly revealed through Ice Age melts. Yeah, so from all the way from China through Siberia mm. and across to North America. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm thinking probably the oldest conqueror I can think of is Alexander. Non-European? Oh, non-European, sorry. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. <laughs> Genghis Khan. <laughs> Genghis Khan is a pretty big one, and Alexander the Great is also an important figure. His he is considered to be a European explorer to to some extent, but also because he was from Macedonia, so he is sometimes framed as an Eastern explorer in his own right, because he was not Greek, and Greek was what mattered at the time. When you think again of exploration in an age when you did not have very powerful boats, when you had only a very faint idea of what the world looked like, what modes of transportation do you think were used to explore the lands that surrounded the Indian Ocean? I'm probably just riding animals, so like uh, elephants. I remember elephants being in many different images of... Alexander the Great. <laughs> elephants. Elephants make a big impression with Hannibal and the Roman Empire later on. Yeah, elephants. but there's Indian elephants, there's African elephants, so it makes sense. Both of those being one exploring into India and one yeah. exploring from Northern Africa. Well, my point is that ships actually come into the story quite late. For most of antiquity, Homer, the author of the old Homeric tales and mythologies, Uh, Homer disseminated the image of a single contiguous world surrounded by an empty sea. So you would have Eurasia and Africa all linked together, surrounded by infinite water. And that was the um, dominant image, and it scared anyone interested in more distant explorations of the ocean. So the first exploration started overland, and the maritime journeys remained very close to the shores. You rightly mentioned Alexander the Great, and he was the first to introduce the Greeks and the entire Hellenistic world to the novelties of Arabia and India, because he launched very wide-ranging military campaigns in a very short amount of years, just 10 years, which itself is impressive. At the end of his Indian campaign, in 324 BCE, Alexander descended the Indus River to its mouth near present-day Karachi in Pakistan. And from this place, he dispatched a fleet along the coast to explore some 1,400 miles of unknown coast all the way back to Babylon, eventually in modern-day Iraq. When he did that, he brought attention to the Persian Gulf and also to the Arabian Sea. So it's only with Alexander the Great that the Arabian Sea, the east of India, starts to feature on Greek maps. Can you remind me of the dates for Alexander the Great? 
all the campaigns happen between 334 and 324 BCE, and Alexander died the year after. So for the wider chronology, Alexander the Great's life is in between the end of the Hellenistic Empire, centered on Athens, and the rise to prominence of Rome. But exploration didn't only happen from Greece to the east. Exploration also happened from the east to the west, and actually the Chinese of the Han Dynasty began to dispatch trade caravans westward along what came eventually to be called the Silk Road, the overland route from China through Central Asia to the Levant and ultimately the Mediterranean. Wow, it's early for the Silk Road to already exist. The Silk Roads have been around for a very long time indeed, 130 BCE. And that means that exploration overland was happening not just from west to east, but from east to west. And the sea, the ocean, the maritime spaces were still very much spaces that inspired a fear of unknown dangers. The boats were following the coast and there was very little knowledge about what laid further beyond the shores. So traveling the Silk Roads was still quite reassuring and they remained a popular route for centuries. In the 13th century, for example, the Italian Marco Polo was still following the same road that Chinese traders had uh, first um, opened over a thousand years earlier. But When did um, wide-ranging oversea travel start in the Indian Ocean? The process of maritime explorations in this region was actually triggered by the rise to prominence of the Ottoman Empire, which controlled part of the Silk Road. However, again, the exploration did not originate with Europeans. The first consequent sea journey over the Indian Ocean was the doing of Zheng He. Zheng He was Chinese and he undertook seven formidable maritime expeditions through what he knew as the Western Sea. So that was the name for the Indian Ocean for the Chinese. You see, it led to the West for them. And Zheng He did seven expeditions between 1405 and 1433. So what was the purpose of these ventures? Part of it was exploration, but um, mostly these voyages were political ventures. They were meant to impress. So the first voyage alone featured 62 ocean-going junk, and in addition to these large junks was a fleet of 225 smaller vessels and almost 28,000 men lot. Okay, sorry, junk? A junk is... um very large vessel, which if you picture the boats that Columbus was using on his travels across the Atlantic, well, the the 65 junks that Zheng He used were about 400 feet when the largest of Columbus's free boats was 85 feet long. Cool. So how long did these voyages last? Each of the seven voyages lasted two years on average, and in total they took in destinations ranging from Indochina to East Africa, and every single coastal point between them. 
by 1420, the history of the Indian Ocean was actually very much a Chinese history. Chinese ships and sailors had at the time no equal in the world, and the Indian Ocean was about to become a Chinese lake, quite different from the image of the British Empire being the most dominant force in the Indian Ocean. And what about the indigenous civilizations that were in India and Indian Peninsula at the time? I mean, there's the Mughal Empire, right? The Mughals were more land-based. The frontiers of the Mughal Empire in the north of the Indian Peninsula did not reach the sea until several decades after the foundation of the empire in the 16th century. But it had huge rivers, including the Indus, the Ganges, and their many tributaries. So they developed technologies to travel on the rivers. The Chinese were the dominant power on the sea, but it's necessary to remember that they were not conquering those spaces either. They were actively trading with them and making other places recognize their political presence and their power. But things shifted very fast in the region, and 80 years after Zheng He's expeditions in the 1500s, the Indian Ocean was actually a lot closer to becoming an Arab lake, with boats and traders going around the region and having diplomatic missions and also disseminating religious beliefs as well across the Indian Ocean in East Africa and in South and East Asia. So, let's talk about Britain. How did Britain, or any European power really, enter the scene? How did global maritime exploration become a story of Europeans? Does Anyone know when Europeans started to look for a passage to India? I know this one. Why? I said it in the last episode is why. 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue. Yes, exactly. 1492 is one of the attempts to reach India. Actually, Europeans had been obsessed with finding a passage, specifically a maritime passage to India for quite a long time. Marco Polo's travels and also greater contact with the traders coming from the Silk Roads had created, or started to create at least, a lot of interest in Europe for the rich products of the East. While at the same time, Europe was being constantly at war, so it was looking for sources of metals uh, and products in general. But another important factor for this search of a maritime passage to India was maybe, surprisingly, the end of the Crusades, which is um, a series of European holy wars waged from the 11th to the 13th century. What effects did the Crusades have on European trade? Well, actually, the Crusades very much increased European trade, they helped expanding cities and towns, and the um, consumption habits of the Europeans were transformed with rice, coffee, spices, and new fruits being brought to Europe through the Crusades. The Crusades meant fighting, but they also meant trading. Or stealing. Yeah, yeah trading or <laughs> yeah. stealing. 
Well, despite the religious divide, the Crusades dramatically increased um, maritime trade between the East and the West, and well, it basically transformed the consumption habits and created a market in Europe for Eastern goods. Some explorers also wanted to find new trade routes to the Indian Ocean because they wanted to avoid dealing with Muslim middlemen in the Ottoman Empire. They wanted to maximize profit. And their initial goal was to have access to the Spice Islands in eastern Indonesia. And they have this name of Spice Islands because of the nutmeg, because of maize, because of cloves, which were um, local products that were very desirable in Europe. The search for passage to India also happened in the background of growing religious intolerance in Europe, especially after the final removal of Muslim presence in Western Europe with um, the end of the Reconquista in Spain um, and in Portugal. So we have Europeans searching for routes to Asia through the oceans. We have the Reconquista happening in Spain and Portugal to kick out Muslim, former Muslim invaders. And we have still trade, increased, no, increased demand of Europeans for goods from the East, more or less. So there's big markets and there's big chance of profits. Exactly. So there are these factors, religious intolerance, economic and consumer changes in Europe. And then you have the desire to find new profitable trade routes in order to maximize profit. In this story, it's Portugal who took the lead for European exploration. Even though the Portuguese did not rule over uh, an immense territory, they had already a good control of the sea routes because they had conquered islands in the Atlantic and off the coast of Africa. We all know the story of Christopher Columbus who sailed west across the Atlantic and he sailed west because he was hoping to find a westward passage to India. But, well, instead he landed on Haiti and later the coast of Central America, and he actually never made it to North America in his lifetime. And yet still, they celebrate Columbus Day for some reason. Well, historical accuracy is not often the thing of national celebrations. Indigenous Heritage Day. (laughs) Controversial. Passage westward to India was only achieved in 1520, when Magellan went around the southern tip of the Americas at Cape Horn. But before that, there was a passage eastward that was found in 1488, even before Columbus stumbled upon the Caribbean. Two Portuguese caravels, commanded by Bartolomeu Diaz, accidentally dropped anchor about 200 miles east of what is now Cape Town in South Africa. The thing is that at the time, most people believed that the Indian Ocean was a closed sea, that it was impossible to enter it without having to cross some stretch of land. So Diaz went 
all the way around the African continent without noticing that he was doing so. And he entered for the first time the Indian Ocean by sea from Europe. There was a little bit of a lag between the discovery of this passage eastward and the confirmation that it was an actual route to India. Columbus landing in Haiti had postponed other explorations and um, for some time people truly believed that Columbus had landed in India or in East Asia at least. So there was a second journey in 1497 by Vasco da Gama and that changed everything. It was no longer a voyage of discovery but it was actually an armed embassy And this was in part because there was a realization that the American continent was, well, definitely not India. So when does Britain enter the scene? The English, again, were pretty late in the game. And Britain is only one part of a much wider story of travels, explorations and attempts to find sea routes. The English only entered the scene some 100 years later, when Queen Elizabeth I encouraged maritime expansion to first defend Protestant England against the Catholics of Europe, so it wanted to defend it against Spain, Portugal, and also not just the Catholics, but also the Netherlands, because they all (laughs) had had, um, a head start, and, well, it was time to catch up on those explorations and conquests. And also, expansion seemed profitable. England had already, for decades, pirated um, Spanish ships that were full of silver and gold. And the idea was that a presence on the sea would be very profitable for the English economy. Yeah, the pirates are always profitable for England. Always. Piracy is just another odd way to do business. And well, finally, uh, Elizabeth I wanted England to have an in on these colonies and conquests, and she focused a lot more um, on the English navy during her reign. And one of the latest projects of the reign of Elizabeth was actually to find a way for England to trade directly with India, with the Spice Islands, and it was going to do so through the newly chartered East India Company. Ah, the famous East India Company. When is this, 1600? Yes, 1600 is when the East India Company received its charter from Elizabeth I. Um, This company was founded for trade purposes but it ended up planting the seeds of what would grow into a significant British activity in another and very distant part of the world, the Indian subcontinent initially, and also the wider Indian Ocean region in the 19th century. And the East India Company's Royal Charter granted it a monopoly on all trade east of the Cape of Good Hope. This company also fueled Britain's competition with the Dutch and the Portuguese, uh, who were the then dominant powers in the region, or dominant European powers. 
the East India Company is a good example of how the history of empire is paved with unintended consequences because the company was formed with the intent of trading with, quote, the East Indies as opposed to the West Indies, which are the Caribbean. But um, the company ended up becoming the dominant presence on the subcontinent, which was at the north of this ocean. The East India Company ended up being a ruling body, but rule was always exercised with the assistance of indigenous political elites. Most were pre-colonial, some were created by the British, some were powerful, some were weak, and there were also a large network of indigenous employees. And so often said that India was ruled by a very small group of British civil servants, around about a thousand. But what is more rarely mentioned is that, well, the government of India employed about a million Indians to assist them in the enterprise. Um, at the time, the Indian population was, well, it had been about 100 million in the 1500s, and under the Mughal Empire, the population was at about 160 million in the 1700s. It was quite a large population. And in addition to the Mughals, there were about 600 different semi-autonomous kingdoms or princely states all across the subcontinent. So it's a very complex landscape. So what was India like before? What were the cultures, communities, and empires which existed in the subcontinent before the East India Company made its way in? What we know as India today was a collection of kingdoms and princely states, maharajas and emperors. In the south, you had the Sultan of Mysore, at the center, the Maratha Confederacy, in the north, the powerful Mughal and Sikh empires. So a variety of political rules and systems, but also a great diversity of religions and cultures. At its most basic level, what we consider to be the British Empire in the Indian subcontinent at this time was very much a collection of trading ports and independent territories that had very little to do with each other, but which Britain linked together conceptually by talking of a generic India. And just to look at Britain at this time, it's also a time when we can start talking about Britain rather than England, since um, the union of England and Scotland had been achieved at the death of Elizabeth I. So the early ages, uh, the early years of the East India Company was an age of company rule, but that was the case for Britain and also for other European powers. It's a very different form of imperialism, and that also shows that colonization was first a matter of business and of capital. I seem to recall there being a Dutch East India Company, a French East India Company, an English East India Company. So clearly this is very heavily populated by various trading companies at this time. The 1600s and the 1700s are very much the age of companies. Across the whole Indian Ocean region, we can find European trading companies with the support or approbation of the government of their own countries, 
who had semi-official functions in these areas. And they were sometimes fulfilling diplomatic roles, sometimes acquiring lands on behalf of their country. They often waged wars on behalf of their governments without it being officially Britain, France, Spain or the Netherlands um, officially conquering the spaces. The East India Company was a monopolistic trading body formed for the exploitation in the place of England and later Britain of the trade with East and Southeast Asia and India. And it very quickly became involved in local politics and it was an agent of British imperialism in India from the early 18th century to the mid-19th century when it was finally dismantled. So the 1600s is when the East India Company comes in and the 1850s is when the East India Company is fully dismantled. But um, the company actually loses control from the 1800s onwards just as the British government starts well, being increasingly and more directly involved. And where was it based? The East India Company operated from several main trading settlements in Bombay, Mumbai, uh, Calcutta, which is Kolkata today, and Madras, which is Chennai. And it was shipping goods from Asia worth up to one million pounds a year. So the trade um, of the East Indian Company with India was becoming more and more central to the British economy. And uh, the company was based in Bengal, which is the northeast of modern-day India. And there the company traded under the protection of a local dynasty, which it actually started to control uh, more and more. It was also based at the Madras Presidency on the East Coast. Britain had purchased a lot of land for forts and factories in the 1630s, and it was expanding inland. And finally, the company was based in Bombay, Mumbai, on the West Coast, where it came into conflict with the powerful Maratha princely estates surrounding it. So as a result, the East India Company became very entangled in uh, Indian politics and it attempted to exploit its position to further its own ends and also to, well, <laughs> to frustrate the rival companies. And the East India Company gave military aid to friendly states in return for trade concessions. So there was a lot of networking going on. And in the process, gradually, the states in the south of India, but also elsewhere, started becoming British puppets. A really good example of of just how much opportunity this created for individuals in England is the example of a man called Robert Polk. So he comes from Wadham College here at Oxford, and he would originally join as a naval chaplain on an East India Trading Company ship around 1750. 
over time when he arrived in India, he made good friends with a lot of the traders and a lot of the people in power who put deals his way and he ended up getting involved in trade himself and made quite a small fortune, which the East India Company wasn't too happy about and they ordered him to confine himself to his religious duties in fact. He actually renounces his uh, clerical vows and is given the post of governor of Madras, which allows him to expand his trade incredibly and greatly enlarge personal wealth for himself. So Polk goes from being this very unknown naval chaplain to the governor of a huge part of territory and is then later named a baron by King George III in recognition of his, his advancements. And still today, the strait between Sri Lanka and India bears his name. So there's a really strong amount of political opportunity, material opportunity, economic advancement available to individuals who enter the companies at this time, no matter what their background. Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine embarking on the ship to work in trade and ending up having political power in another part of the world? It sounds crazy, but it was pretty much what was happening time and again in this time, both in the British, but also in, in other European colonies. You had traders who ended up gaining political power in foreign lands. And so in, in Bengal, in the northeast of India, uh, the British were fighting with the Indian rulers who were called the Nawabs. And the Nawab were resisting uh, British encroachments, but they were also weakened by the extent of the British penetration in their territories. And the most famous conflict happened in 1756-57, culminating with the Battle of Plessis. For context, England was then at war in Europe, uh, but also in North America. And then there was this war in India, so this is starting to show how global the presence of Britain is already at this point. In 1757, the British defeated the Nawab of Bengal, Siraj ad Daula, at this Battle of Plessis. And they did so with the help of a conspiration of different court members and bankers and in the meantime, they also defeated the French. So they just removed them from the peninsula. So they didn't have their competition anymore. This conflict was the culmination of the East India Company's attempts to gain trade concessions. And after this battle, the next Nawabs were removed from their political positions whenever they failed to meet the company's demands. And Bengal became a lot more like a British colony. So that means that before 1756, there is a little bit more of cooperation and diplomacy between the Nawabs and the East India Company. But after that date, it's a lot more straightforward. The British represented by the company, acted as a bully towards the different uh, princes and rulers of India. So the British did a really good job then of using the already intrinsic divisions that existed between the different states and peoples across the Indian subcontinent for their own benefit, first as allies working 
with them to defeat others, and then by later taking full control and basically betraying those allies they'd established. Exactly. So first cultivating the divisions and then creating a situation in which basically the only possible outcome was to agree to whatever the British were asking for the sake of not being removed from power. The symbol of this change of relationship happened when the Nawab of Bengal granted the company um, the Diwani, which is the right to raise revenue and administer finances. And this happened in 1765. So at this point, the East India Company could actually raise revenue and could manage the finances in Bengal as if it was a ruling government or state. And in this way, uh, Bengal became a stepping stone for further expansion in the Indian subcontinent, even though that expansion was actually (laughs) expressly forbidden by London. So the, the British government was already quite busy with other wars at the time, in particular the Seven Years' War, and after that the run-up to the American War of Independence. And in this context of political upheaval, Westminster was a little bit worried about other potential sources of conflict in the Indian subcontinent. Britain's representatives on the ground, such as uh, Robert Clive or Warren Hastings, were prepared to take the offensive to go to war on very flimsy pretexts, and the East India Company was seeking to establish its own supremacy and defeat potential rivals whenever they felt the slightest resistance. So the actions of the East India Company men illustrates the power of the man on the spot of the individual to actually make empire, to create empire, even in defiance of the metropole. To some extent, it is the story of different individuals, their choices, and the power they gained from them. This is instrumental in setting the structure for British influence in India and more official British rule in India as well. And they were pretty much making a colony out of the Indian subcontinent, even though it was in defiance of the metropole. As a result, the East India Company men and their proxies were operating on the ground generations before Britain controlled anything beyond tiny coastal enclaves. However, well, this hunger for land grabbing and for wealth meant that the East India Company became locked into a cycle of conquest followed by financial crisis, costs a lot to wage war, and that resulted in further conquest because, you know, to solve the lack of money, and the revenue was ruthlessly run to the ground, And although the company was bringing over one million pounds to Britain each year, this advantage was no longer offsetting the costs. And in the 1770s and 1780s, the company needed financial help from the British government 
which in turn imposed a lot stricter control upon it. And that began the company's transition from a private business into a branch of the imperial state. Okay, so they get incorporated then into this like larger apparatus of British imperial power. And does that mean some of their company controls get taken away as well? Yes, so the company control is starting to go to governors of India, uh, appointed directly by the British government and by the monarchs of England. And one of the first governors of India is actually Charles Cornwallis, who had had a career in the in the British army during the American Revolution, and he actually was the the general who who lost the decisive battle of Yorktown, which kind of lost the British colonies on the east coast of America. But this also shows how an imperial system was starting to emerge across continents and oceans. And it also very much illustrates the transition from first trade, then company rule, then finally former rule in India. And if if we take a step back to look at the wider history, how did British how did the British Imperial project evolve over time? With the expansion of the Indian Ocean and the more and more formal control over Britain's diverse territories, which again do not represent India as a whole, we can kind of witness a sort of transition from the first British Empire, which was founded in the 17th century, which was based on the large migration of settlers to the American colonies, which witnessed the development of the sugar plantation colonies in the West Indies, and which also more or less ends after the American independence in 1783, even though well, there are still lingering effects of empire on the American continent, in Canada, and in the Caribbean. And we can see a transition with um, the limits that are imposed on the company role in India, transition to a second British Empire, which emerges in the 17th century as well. It is a chain of trading ports and naval bases controlled by the company, and it further expands inland, and it controls a large number of natives, especially in India. And the second uh, British Empire has also a lot less settlers than in the Americas, and mostly administrators. So a transition more or less then from people within the British Isles that go out and do stuff in an empire to the British state sending individuals and having full control. Exactly. From the individual to the political to some extent. This all happened in the context of constant wars and battles and conflicts with other European powers War is more the norm than the exception, both in Europe and across colonies. And that means an acute need for money and resources and territorial competition beyond Europe. This is a very brief introduction to exploration and early colonization in the Indian Ocean. And it's by no means helping to address all the intricacies and nuances 
of the early British rule in India. A turning point is the occupation of the Cape of Good Hope by the British in 1806, which secures passage to the Indian Ocean for British traders and the British army and navy. In the 19th century, India eventually became the base for further expansion in other regions of the Indian Ocean. Ships sailed directly from the Indian Peninsula and not from Britain. All right, well, thanks for coming to listen to our very brief introduction to the British Empire podcast. This was our third episode on the Indian Ocean region, and please join us for our next one, which will be released in two weeks' time and discusses the Pacific Ocean region. If you want more information on Uncomfortable Oxford, you can find us online on our website at www.uncomfortableoxford.com. Or you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter for more information. We also have Instagram. And if you would like to attend a lecture, unfortunately, they're currently not going on because of COVID-19. However, we will continue to record all of our lectures and release them as podcasts. Lectures will hopefully begin again every month in September in the city of Oxford, where they'll take place in a local cafe, pub, or other social space and open and free for all. The music you're hearing is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, and this podcast is proudly supported by Torch, the network for research and humanities at the University of Oxford. See you next time.